Geopolitics Conversations and to this podcast series on resistance, radicalisation and religion, where we'll be looking at division and extremism in different parts of the world and in history. I'm Suzanne Rain and I'm joined today by Professor Ali Ansari of the University of St Andrews, who is an expert on modern Iran with a particular interest in nationalism and political development. He's currently on a fellowship at the UK's Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office and is here speaking in a personal capacity. Ali, welcome. Thank you, good to be with you. So let's start, I mean, the subject of this podcast might have been tailor-made for a discussion on modern Iranian history. Could we start by looking at the revolution of 1979, which saw the overthrow of the Shah, and with it turning away from Western, particularly British and American, influence and interference? Was that a question of taking back control? Well, I, I suppose, yes. I mean, to coin a phrase, it was in, in one sense. I mean, Iran has had two uh, significant political revolutions in the 20th century. Both were attempts by the people or the political elites uh, in one form or another to take back control of the state, but also in some ways, certainly in 1979, to take back, in a sense, a control from what they perceived to be Western interference, particularly that of the United States in 79. And I think a much more sort of deeper underlying motive was this idea that the Iranian state had declined in its sort of power, prestige, status over the previous 200 years. And this was an attempt to sort of reboot it, if you will. So there were a variety of different motives. Obviously, religion played a fairly important role in that in that desire to, to restate their sort of their, 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 their position. But there were other there were other factors involved, obviously. So that's dig a deeper into that because it's exactly that question about what the different motives were and how the people organizing the resistance or revolution how they use those motives to, to mobilize a population so given it'd be really really interesting to sort of hear you talk about those those different aspects so was it more a case of religious identity or was it national identity have they have they always been intertwined? And, and given that the central tenet of the revolution was that it was an Islamic revolution, what was the role of, of Shia religion and identity in, in creating the momentum of the resistance movement? I mean, it's a massive question, Ali, but um, it would be really helpful, I think, to, to try and break all that down. I will try. I will try and, uh, and I will try and make it concise. I mean, basically, there are three complementary, I would say, sort of ideological trends in, in, in modern Iran in that sense. So one of them is is very clearly nationalism and a sort of secular nationalism. But nationalism didn't always, wasn't always seen as uh, juxtaposed against religion. I mean, there were many nationalists who were very religiously devout. I mean, it's it, so, it, I, I think sometimes, you know, in the academy, we, we like to sort of categorise people into very clean and tidy sort of groups. That's obviously not the case. There were people that would identify, I suppose, as, as nationalists, there were others who were very much more identified with the left in Iran. And then, you know, the third group were what we might term, you know, the Islamists in one way or form. But of course, all those three different groups tended to sort of overlap with each other. And there were various people who, there, there, there were different hues, if I can put it that way. There were different sort of 
shades of, of, of color in terms of your, uh, of your political leaning. So in the earlier part of the 20th century, a lot of this was really driven by what we might term a stronger nationalist uh, sense, driven by that. But then by the mid 20th century, the attitudes began to shift. You see the same thing really in the Arab world as well. That what you see is then people saying that, you know, moving away from that sort of nationalism that might have been more liberal in, in outlook towards more radical positions coming from the left and, and, and the Islamic groups. And then what you find is that under the Shah in particular, there was a huge amount, because of course the, the environment is that of the Cold War, of course, let's not forget that. There's a huge amount of emphasis on really controlling what they consider to be the threat from communism and the threat from the left. And ironically, of course, then as a consequence of that, a, a, a less a less less attention paid to what was going on in the mosques, shall we say. And so what you see is a growth really of Islamism, partly fostered by the state in a way or encouraged by it, but also a growth of what is often termed Islamic Marxism. So the sort of merger of the sort of the left and, and, the, uh, and the Islamic groups. The Shah used to call this, you know, the unholy alliance between the black and the red. I mean, that's what he would call it. And he'd said, you know, this is the great threat to the country. And of course, for him, by 1977-78, what was disastrous for him and his regime, of course, was the fact that the black and the red did come together. So the left and the, the Islamic groups sort of came together. And very much identified in some ways in the person of Ayatollah Khomeini himself, who drew on basically uh, many left-wing ideas, actually, to articulate his case. So what you're saying, I think, is that basically when the Shah tried to close down resistance in one form, it, it sort of squeezed it towards another form in a way. So it didn't it didn't reduce it. It just it just changed its shape. So basically, there's this, you know, the Shah doesn't he doesn't see the threat as coming from the from the Islamic groups. I mean, he's quite devout himself. So he sort of thinks that he's promoting the religious culture of the country but obviously not in the way that it emerges against him, you know, this sort of a radical position against him. And what you see is this uh, revolutionary movement that builds up really from the 60s and 70s in Iran that in a sense merges the sort of religious right with, with, the, with the sort of secular left. You get a sort of a radicalization of Shiism, Shiism reinterpreted with Marxist tropes of various sorts. So it's, it's almost re-empowered by it. So Shiism traditionally has always been quite, I mean, it's been quietist. It's tended not to be political. What you find in the 60s and 70s is Shiism becomes revolutionized in that sense. It becomes imbued with a lot of Marxist ideas. And then, of course, Khomeini himself used a lot of these ideas to re-energize Shiism as a sort of a, this sort of cultural martyrdom, self-sacrifice, working for the oppressed. And this sort of idea of the oppressed and the oppressors, you know, it merges rather well with sort of Marxist doctrines as well, this anti-capitalist drive and others. I mean, they, they sort of feed off each other, if I can put it that way, and and, and reinforce each other. So you, you found this situation where you had a lot of the Iranian students abroad in the United States and in Britain and other places who were agitating for revolution, very much almost exclusively sort of from drawn from, to, to left-wing ideas. But then finding when they went back to Iran, that actually these left-wing groups didn't quite have the traction that they thought they had. And a lot of it's being driven by the Islamist groups in part because, of course, the Islamist groups have the sort of the, the structures in place. They have the network of mosques. They have the clerics. They have reach into the working class poor in a way that, you know, your sort of middle class 
left-wing rich kids in in in, in the West don't. I mean, they're they're not that connected. They may be revi- they may be sort of budding revolutionaries, but they're not really connected with the sort of the grassroots in the country. So that's again, that, I mean, that's that's really helpful, Ali, because what you're describing there is essentially a socialist resistance movement that is enabled by um, a, a structure that already exists, but also a, a mindset which 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 helps to sort of boost it. And I think that question about sort of Shia identity as as being essentially, you know, on the losing side, um, being the outsiders, being the underdog, is clearly a sort of a really important motivating factor in a in a movement that is seeking to motivate people to to rise up and and defend or rebel. Um, is is that who kind of instrumentalized that? Is was that the Ayatollahs, was it, did it come from grassroots? What, how did the, the sort of movement grow? Well, there were, there, were, there were a number of movements. I mean, there were a, a number of left-wing movements, particularly, that were very active and quite well organised. I mean, I, I don't want to underestimate them at all. Uh, but they were, you know, they, they had almost like a party political structure about them. They were probably smaller in number than the religious groups, but probably better organised to begin with. And in some ways, form the shock troops of the revolution. I mean, these were the armed guerrillas, if you can put it that way. And um, you know, they brought in many Islamic ideas to sort of essentially make Marxist ideas appealing to Iranians, if I can put it that way. So you know, obviously, if you you follow a, a straightforward Marxist sort of revolutionary movement, people say, well, this is very atheistic. It's not really in tune with the culture of the country. So what you do is you sort of marry it, however awkward it might be. To Islam, and you say actually they're both the same thing, you know, a bit like you know Christian Democrats were Islamic Marx, so it sort of works that way. Not that that's probably a bad example because obviously I'm not saying Christian Democrats doesn't merge very well, but you know it's this idea that they can, uh, you know, that they 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 can marry each other in a way that might be a little bit inconvenient, but it, it's not necessarily consistent, but it works. It works. It's an ideological fudge. And then obviously on the other side, what left wing ideas did is they basically radicalized Islamic thought in some ways. It sort of empowered it in a way. So you have a number of what we would call lay religious thinkers. A very prominent one was Ali Shariati, who basically articulated a sort of a a view of revolutionary Shiism, really without clerics, I have to say. I mean, he appealed to a lot of middle class because he he wasn't really interested in orthodox Shiism. He thought orthodox Shiism was actually very state-orientated and very establishment-orientated, and really that to, to free itself from this, it had to free itself from these traditional structures. So he was very influential. But then, of course, clerics themselves were a number of quite interesting sort of clerical figures who essentially borrowed some of these ideas from the left uh, and, and sort of integrated them into Shia thought to basically say, for instance, you know, as I was saying earlier in a way that, let's say, the culture of martyrdom and Shiism, well, this could be interpreted in the, in the struggle of the oppressed against the, against the oppressor. And this is a sort of a, a, a trope that both ideological prisms. So in that sense, it appeals to a broad range. And, and one of the things that Khomeini, you know, you think of Khomeini, the late 70s, you know, an, an, an old, bearded, clerical figure, you know, what's his appeal to the youth of the country? Well, his appeal to the youth of the country is that he seems, on the one hand, as traditional as he is, he's also thoroughly modern. He sort of can say to them, well, I've read these works, I've read these books, I know what these people are saying, I know what these radical left-wing thinkers are saying, and, you know, this is really all Islam all we're doing is we're reimagining Islam in a different way and I can lead that. So when he talks about, you know, the great Satan, 
The great Satan is an extraordinarily clever trope in that sense, metaphor, if you will. So what he's, you know, it's both Islamic because he's talking about the great tempter, but at the same time, he's also talking about the materialism of capitalist culture and what the United States represents. It always, their materialism drags you away from the natural spirituality that you should have. And therefore, in that single phrase, he, he appeals to both members of the left as well as Islamists. I mean, it, 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 it's a clever way of basically squaring the circle. That simplicity of the message is something which comes up again and again, is, is how, how, to, how to craft your message so that you can mobilise people behind it. And, and, and the, the shorter and sweeter, in a way, the better. What I think is also um, why it's worth digging into this a bit is because one of the explanations that we use nowadays to to you know to explain right-wing extremism in America or the growth of um, Islamist extremism across the Middle East is the role of the internet in in um, conspiracy theories or, or recruiting radicalizing people but this was of course all completely pre-internet and so what you're talking about in a way is a is a prototype is there anything else you can say about about how they did that, how he managed to sort of distill down the message and to recruit, because I imagine there was a large amount of people who would class themselves both as strongly Shia and as Iranian national people, but who weren't necessarily naturally predisposed to, to want a revolution. So, so how did he sort of tip that balance? Well, there's a couple of things that, you know, we need to bear in mind. One is that a lot of these clerics are actually trained in rhetoric in that sense. I mean, a lot of their working life is preaching in that sense. So they, the good ones know how to, to tap in. Uh, but in order for these things to resonate, of course, you, you have to operate in a political system that's quite repressive. So the, the Pahlavi regime, certainly by the 1970s, was becoming increasingly authoritarian and increasingly repressive. And... The problem with that is, of course, is that the people didn't trust the official sort of uh, messages coming from government and were therefore more willing to listen to other people. Even when I even when I have to say when, you know, the Shah and the government were actually telling you the truth, you refused to believe it. At the height of the revolution, for instance, a very, very notorious incident called the Jarlis Square Massacre, which was uh, in autumn of 1978. And of course, um, the 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 revolutionary said that thousands of people had died. I mean, there was even sort of foreign reporters were saying how dreadful it was and so on and so forth, which, of course, you know, it was a very bloody affair. The Shah's, you know, the government said about 81 people or 82 people had been had lost their lives in this, in, in, in the clampdown, and, the, you know, the military had obviously shot into the crowd. Now, of course, you know, nobody believed the figure of 81 or 82. I mean, everyone said this is such an underestimation and so on and so forth. It was only about 20 or 30 years later that the Islamic Republic and those actually, when they did a proper assessment, actually their own assessments were that the Shah was right. I mean, you know, he'd actually, the government, the government of the Shah of Iran had been honest. But of course, nobody was going to believe that. So people wanted to believe what they wanted to believe. So there's a receptive audience. And of course, the other thing is that not only was this sort of ability to communicate effectively with the common people in, in language and other things that they would understand, but of course, Khomeini was uh, was famous, as were the clerics, for using what technology they had. And in those days, of course, it was a tape recorder, and they would record sermons, and they would then, you know, distribute. There was also this view, certainly by the Shah's regime, that many foreign news agencies were replicating, were somewhat sympathetic with the revolutionaries, and therefore were often sort of acting as an amplifier of their message. And there was lots of criticism, for instance, of the BBC Persian service, who 
occasionally, I have to say, would then say, I asked, you know, uh, Ayatollah Khomeini has said that uh, people should uh, rise up at the following time and the following place and so on and so forth. And of course, you know, people would then go, ah, you know, the BBC Persian service has spoken, ironically, given that, you know, the way they view the BBC Persian service today. But in those days, it was seen as the voice of truth. So if they said that Ayatollah Khomeini had said something, they would necessarily, they, they would uh, tend to believe it. But of course, internally, there was this vast network. I mean, rumour is, 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 is the wrong word, but there was a sort of a, a, a chain of, of, of communication that went from different cells throughout society. Uh, and of course, it encouraged, you know, and a bit like Chinese whispers, you know, by the time it gets down to the end of the chain, you know, it can change quite dramatically and become quite extraordinary. Um, but nonetheless, it was a chain that was believed. I mean, that was the, the, the way it worked. And whatever the government did, because it just lacked any authority whatsoever, it wasn't going to punch through that. So that question about who to trust and how to how to sow doubt, um, which we're still struggling with, in fact, struggling with probably more than ever, um, it's it's fascinating to see how, how central it was. I mean, in many ways, it's become so much worse now. Mm. So, yeah. Ali, let's move on to... Um, what happens when the radical resistance movement becomes the radical permanent government? So you could argue, I'm sure well, you could argue, that the Islamic Republic of Iran is, is as radical in its language now as it was in 1979, while at the same time it is a deeply conservative state. So this is quite an achievement. And, and I think the thing I'd really like to sort of look at is, is how it's managed to retain its anger and its energy and its power and... Is this something that is only possible because it still sees itself in a state of resistance to particularly to the UK and the US um, and that, that it's possible to have the IRGC and the Quds Force and the Versiege simply because the resistance still needs to carry on? Or, or, or what's your view on how they've managed to sort of still be radical and rebellious after all this time? Well, I mean, you know, part of the, you know, part of the reason, I, the way I see it anyway, is is that they get stuck in some sort of loop, effectively. I mean, they can't escape. So most people sort of assume that a revolutionary movement will eventually start to calm. You know, it starts to rationalise itself. It starts to settle into government. You know, we move from poetry to prose. And obviously it will aspire or hang in there with a bit of revolutionary rhetoric. But for all practical purposes, it's become a sort of a, a regular government. And you see that in Iran, actually, you know, post the Iran-Iraq war, there is a move towards a sort of a rationalization of government procedure. And in Iran, you know, because we have this dual power structure between essentially the republic and then the sort of revolutionary organizations around the revolution, there's this tension. But really, in the 1990s, you saw the sort of all the, the institutions of the republic really sort of trying to settle into the driving seat and say, well, you know, now we've achieved power. Obviously, we, we, we celebrate the revolution. The revolution is very important in terms of myth and memory and so on and so forth. But we're now moving into the good times. We want to make a bit of money and this sort of thing and um, uh, really become the government. The problem was, was because of these internal tensions, there were other groups, sort of more revolutionary groups, who also felt that this sort of settling down to having the good life and whatever was a bit of a betrayal of what the revolution was all about. And, and there were elements of truth in that, of course. I mean, there was some people were benefiting a great deal from being in power that, you know, to be honest, in terms of the, the aspirations of the revolution to, to deliver to the oppressed or to develop a democratic settlement or whatever, or to achieve various things, there was a huge dispute about what, what the, the revolution's aims were. There was a huge sort of disagreement 
uh, obviously over the direction of travel in that sense and who should be the sort of beneficiaries of all this. And so ultimately, I think, you know, what you see in um, Iran is a, a group of people on the more revolution, you know, the more Islamic revolutionary side who develop uh, almost a theory of continuous revolution. I mean, that, that's, that's what, you know, because it, it serves their interests, of course. It diminishes that sort of group of people who want a sort of Republican settlement, so to speak, uh, and a more normal government. And then emphasizes the fact that actually, you know, we have an aspiration for the revolution. It's got nothing to do, by the way, with having a democracy or, or an Islamic republic. It's to do with fulfilling an Islamic vision for the future. And we can go into some detail about what this Islamic vision may be. But it's 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 quite rad. I mean, it's it is pretty radical. It's it's pretty authoritarian. It it revolves around the person of the supreme leader as the representative of the hidden imam in this world. So that's strongly Shia in its in its uh, outlook. And of course, democracy and this sort of thing doesn't actually feature in all this. I mean, it's 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 it, it doesn't feature. It's all about a sort of a spiritual redemption. And of course, what they do, there's two things that work in their favor. One is that you need to have a sort of a permanent enemy. So the great Satan or global arrogance, or whatever you want to call it, the United States, the West, capitalism, whatever, becomes a permanent, fixture of that, a permanent feature of that landscape, which is part of the raison d'etre of the revolution, by the way. I mean, they're there. And, you know, the revolution will not be successful until the United States collapses, basically, which, you know, this could go on forever. But, you know, that suits them in that sense. You know, on top of that, there's this sort of a protracted vision of a sort of a goal that's so far in the future, it's almost millenarian in some ways, but we're never quite there. So you get you get these sort of members of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps who talk repeatedly of the fact that we are on stage two of a five-stage process to fulfil the promise of the Islamic Revolution. And, you know, that's quite galling, I think, for a lot of Iranians, to be honest, that they're only on stage two. I think they sort of thought, ah, oh, 42 years, they might be a good deal further along the road than that. But, of course, this is all about um, maintaining, you know, that revolutionary zeal and power and, and, and keeping it going. So that's the way I, certainly in the Iranian case, I see the way in, in maintaining this revolutionary, um, this revolutionary process. Ali, thank you. That's really interesting. I'm curious about some of the more apocalyptic aspects of uh, behind the philosophy of the revolution. And obviously this is prompted by my thinking about how Daesh used apocalyptic narratives of Sunni Islam to really sort of build their recruitment message and and create the sense that the end of the world was coming and it was the duty of of you, um, a, a sort of devout Muslim, to, to be a part of it. Could you talk a bit more about the more millenarian aspects of, of Shiism that emerged over the course of the revolution? And actually, linking back to what you said, I'm... I'm really interested in that sense that if you have this kind of end of the world aspect to your narrative, it enables you to build in a response to setbacks because in the journey towards the apocalypse, there are a, a series of setbacks. And again, you see that with, with Daesh where it doesn't matter if this, if, this isn't, if this caliph doesn't survive because he is not the last caliph anyway. And in order to get to the end of the world, we have to have a series uh, of, of further caliphs. Um, so, so how does how does that work in the Iranian context? They certainly have this view, and they often argued for this that you know the purpose of the Islamic Revolution. This is the sort of more hardline elements of the Islamic Revolution is to create a world 
in which the hidden imam can return. You know, so this is the, the end of time. And there will be, as you quite rightly say, there will be many ups and downs on this process. I mean, there will be many obstructions, and we, but we will get there in the end. And actually, the person who articulated all this stuff very, very explicitly, of course, we all laughed at him, but he was telling us as he felt it, was Ahmadinejad. I mean, he was all over it. You know, people would say, oh, it's all a bit of a joke and all that. And he believed it. I mean, this is, you know, so, so, I mean, it, it, you know, I mean, even people in Iran thought he was a bit, you know, wayward. But actually, he represents a, a fairly good chunk of that revolutionary elite. You know, who believe that you know it's all about the hidden imam, the hidden imam is there. And remember with the hidden imam, the idea of the hidden imam is that not that he's not there, he's an occultation, and the whole purpose of occultation means he's there, but he's not seen. So only to his very special people can relate to the hidden imam. And that that's obviously gives a certain amount of charismatic authority to those who can claim it. Um and of course Ahmadinejad did claim that a couple of times and um, I mean he suffered for it because you know many of the clerics didn't like it. You know, it's 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 not uncommon this sort of idea. It's it's what we might term, not even might term. It is. It's in my view superstition. I mean, it's 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 an exercise in superstition, and many you know more orthodox clerics are appalled by it. But you know, it's 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 widely felt, widely held by a number of you know a particular group of sort of revolutionary idealists. If I can call that. Just uh, one final question now to talk about resistance to the revolution, and you you've alluded to that a few times. But given what you've just said about setbacks being baked into your your narrative so so the the setback itself doesn't mean the end of the revolution it just means you have to you have to prepare yourself for the next phase or organize yourself for the next phase so what about the growth of the pro-democracy movements in Iran we saw last year what appeared to be significant demonstrations in support of or, or against the killing of General Qasem Soleimani, who, who was assassinated in, in Iraq. Um, so there's still a portion of the population who continue fervently to support the revolution. But there is also a portion of the population who, who clearly don't. Is Iran becoming increasingly divided? And, and is it the case that we now have a, a radical resistance movement on both sides? I mean, I, th- I think that's right. I mean, I, I think there are two uh, narratives. And, you know, one is basically a narrative of revolutionary Islam, and the other is a narrative of uh, democracy, if I can put it that way. Um, both of them are contested, but the fact is that one group believes, and they're mainly drawn from the left and the liberals and others, that the whole purpose of the Islamic revolution was actually to bring democracy to the country. There's another group, that basically the people in charge at the moment, who believe that actually, no, the whole purpose of the Islamic revolution was to create effectively an Islamic government. And, uh, you know, democracy is a bit of a, you know, it's a bit of a misnomer and let's not get too hurt up about that. The interesting thing with Soleimani, if, you know, to go back to him, is of course, you know, a lot of Iranians mourned him because he was a nationalist figure. I mean, for them, they saw him as a nationalist figure, even though I don't think he would have seen himself as that. But many of them were, were shocked by it because he was seen as, as someone protecting Iran, believe it or not, you know, obviously from Daesh and, and this sort of thing. But um, it's certainly true, I think, that there is a sort of a, there is a, a growth in Iran of those who actually think that the revolution has lost its way, you know, that it's going down the wrong path. But at the moment, and certainly since 2009, when you had the last big outpouring of this sort of democratic impulse, if you will, um, it's been systematically hammered. I mean, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's had a very, very hard time. Its main leaders are in house arrest. Um, many others are imprisoned. I mean, basically, it doesn't have the sort of resources that, that allows it to, 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 to challenge the dominant narrative at the moment. 
it's important to bear in mind, by the way, that, you know, many of those who are on the democratic side of things are not necessarily anti-Islamic Republic. They are in favor of the Islamic Republic and in favor of the Islamic Revolution, just a different one. I mean, this is this, this is the point. Now, there's also a case that there's quite a few people that are increasingly moving down the line that think that actually this sort of idea of reforming the system isn't going to work. Therefore, they're looking outside that system. But you know, at the moment, it's 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 uh, you know they're they're not really being heard uh, as much as they might have been even twenty or twenty five years ago. But that those tensions are definitely there, and in some ways, of course, the the radical, more revolutionary Islamic element, it becomes part of their own narrative. Of course, as you say, you know this this constant challenge, tension, the threat, the enemy without, the enemy within. You know, it's glorious stuff. I mean, it, it helps you basically. Uh, define yourself and to maintain the revolution. So it's all part of that. Uh, it's 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 all part of that uh, revolutionary process for them. So Ali, that's we've um, we're running out of time. But just a final question for you. Um, the podcast is is seeking to look at what it feels like to be on the losing side, and the the people we haven't spoken about are the Iranians who were forced to leave after the revolution um, and are in exile. And for them, it's been a very long wait. So just quick final question. Do they still think that there is a future Iran that they can be part of? Well, the interesting thing is, is that in sort of um, nationalist mythology or the mythology of Iran in particular, there's been, the, the, the history of the country has been so turbulent. Um, there have been periodic times, you know, throughout history when Iranians have had to go into exile and... Uh, um, when they've lost elements of their identity, their, 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 their statehood, if not their culture. And, you know, one of the interesting things about Iranian culture is just how much of it is a literary culture. Um, and it's part of an imagination and it creates a very powerful imagination of belonging to Iran. And in that way, you know, there is, you know, even for those who have, have left or in exile, I mean, Khomeini himself was in exile, I think, for 14 years. You know, he never thought he was going to go back. And then suddenly he turned up, you know, he went back. I mean, obviously, the situation now is getting more and more, you know, protracted. And one, you know, thinks in some ways of, of the Russian, you know, the white Russians after the Russian Revolution, who constantly hard, you know, whether they would ever get back. And, you know, but, you know, presumably, you know, some of them did after, you know, 70 years or so. I think there's definitely a yearning. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about it. I think there's definitely a yearning from those in exile uh, to, you know, for that hope that the country will settle and at the very least allow for sort of, connections to be to be remade um and i think you know deep down obviously there are many sort of opposition groups abroad that would want something more radical to happen you know a sort of a, either a return of the monarchy or a, a democratic settlement or whatever one has to say that you know, in the long span of iranian history and the way in which people understand that you know that all things at the end of the day are possible i mean it it, it all depends really on how you know things develop within iran itself and how those people abroad who, you know, interestingly enough, when you look at the history of the Islamic Revolution, of course, a lot of the histories were written by the losers because they all the ones always went went abroad and wrote, you know, many accounts of their experiences. So, you know, a lot of that, I, I, I think, in terms of um, shaping Iranian identity, it is, it is, it is quite interesting in that sense. There is a sort of a diaspora culture that I think is quite strong. It's not always connected with reality, but nonetheless, it, it does maintain a strong connection, identity an attempted sort of relationship, which, you know, one has to think, if we're taking the long view, that certainly there will be a possibility of a, of, of a return. 
Ali, thank you very much indeed. That's been fascinating. And um, I think it's nice to end on that wistful note. So very many thanks for the conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Cambridge Geopolitics Conversations. You can find the Centre for Geopolitics on Twitter at @camgeopolitics, and all our events are advertised online on our website at cfg.polis.cam.ac.uk.